The text for this afternoon is Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. And this is God's holy word for us. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Pray with me once more, friends. Lord, please do miracles as we study your holy word. That's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. And you can be seated. That didn't sound good. In the 7th century BC, there was a man named Josiah who became the king of Judah. And Josiah was the grandson of King Manasseh. And King Manasseh was the most wicked king that Judah had ever known. Manasseh governed Judah for 55 years and led the people into idolatry, immorality, and even child sacrifice. Can I just say to you, we think having a president for eight years is a long time? 55 years of the most wicked king Judah ever knew. But Josiah, Manasseh's grandson, was a strong, God-honoring man. And you can read about him in places like 2 Kings 22. Verses 1 and 2 say, Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. Owen, did you hear that? Yeah. How old? Eight. <laughs> How old are you? Eight. Think that through. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jediah, the daughter of Adaiah of Bozkath, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David, his father. And he did not turn aside to the right or the left. After Josiah was on the throne, he'd been reigning for 18 years. He commanded that repairs be made in the temple of God. The temple was at that time over 300 years old. And so I think you could imagine that a few home improvement projects would have been in order, right? How many of you have home improvement projects you need done in your house right now? Any of them 300 years old? There you go, right? So Josiah gave the command and the work began. And while the work was going on in the temple, something really fascinating happened. The workers were working, they were putting things up, they were cleaning things out. And then 2 Kings 22 verses 8 through 10 say this, listen. And Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. And Shaphan the secretary came to the king and he reported to the king, 
Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. That reading of the book of the Torah, the law of Moses, the only form of the Bible that was available to King Josiah, sparked the greatest reform in the history of Judah. Josiah heard the word of God. He wept over the sin of the nation. He tore his robes. He sought God's favor. And he set about the business of cleaning up the idolatry of a nation that had sat for years upon years in rebellion against God. How low had Judah sunk? Think about this, folks. They were supposed to be the people of God. And when the priests uncovered the book of the law... The Bible, right? They found the Bible. They didn't even know what it was. The king had never heard those words before. They had gotten so far away from God's word, they as a nation had forgotten God's commands. <laughs> uh, king, the priest found a book. You might want to take a look at it. Now, let's contrast the people of Judah before the time of Josiah to one other group of people. You'll read about them in Acts 17, 10 and 11. It says, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Nobody would have called the people of Judah under the reign of Josiah's father, Manasseh or or Ammon. No one would have called them a noble people. But the Bible calls the people of a little town called Berea noble. And the determining factor about why the Bible calls the people of Berea noble is the simple fact that when they heard the teaching about God, they immediately checked the scriptures to find out if the teaching was true. They believed the scriptures to be the source of truth for how to live. They were people of the book. In our day-to-day Christians, we have two options. You can be like the people of Judah under King Manasseh, or we can choose to be like Josiah and like the people of Berea. We'll either choose to be people who have forgotten the word of God, or we'll become people of the book. And this is a choice between sinful and noble, ungodly or godly, doing evil or doing the will of God. Ladies and gentlemen, we want to become people of the book, don't we? As a church, we've got a statement of faith. It helps us to very simply spell out the theological position of the church on some important topics. I want to read to you a paragraph from our church constitution with that statement of faith about the Bible. It says, quote, We believe that the Bible is the word of God fully inspired and without error in the original manuscripts, 
written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and that it has supreme authority in all matters of faith and conduct. Does that sound like what you believe? Let me give you another confession. The Second London Baptist Confession of Faith from 1689. Lovely, lovely confession of faith. It says this to us. Paragraph, or Article 1, Paragraph 1, quote, The Holy Scriptures are the only sufficient, certain, and infallible standard of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Paragraph 6. The whole counsel of God concerning everything essential for his own glory and man's salvation, faith, and life is either explicitly stated or by necessary inference contained in the Holy Scriptures. Nothing is ever to be added to the Scriptures, either by new revelation of the Spirit or by human traditions. Paragraph 10. The supreme judge for deciding all religious controversies and for evaluating all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, human teachings, and individual interpretations, and in whose judgment we are to rest, is nothing but the Holy Scripture delivered by the Spirit. In this Scripture, our faith finds its final word. Isn't that nice? That's well said, folks. You know, it's good for us to know what does our church constitution say about the Bible. And it's good for us to know what the classic confession of faith, the Second London Confession, says about the Bible. And while we should agree that those words are true, you know what's more important? It's more important that you and I see what the Bible, God's holy word, says to us about itself. Does God claim in the Bible that the scripture is everything that our statement of faith claims about the Bible? Can we trust the Bible to be true and trustworthy and clearly the revelation of God? Is it important to God that we be a people of the book? And emphatically I say to you Christians, yes, we must be a people of the book and not just because a scholar said so, we must become a people of the book because the book says so. And if the book says so, God says so. Now, a critic right here, a critic right here would say, Travis, that is circular reasoning. You know what I would say to them? Of course it is. How could it not be? Any argument that attempts to logically express a source of ultimate authority will end up being circular because the argument must depend ultimately on the source it claims has ultimate authority. That makes sense? Or was that too philosophical? Here's the, here's the deal. Let me try to make it easy. If I say to you, this is the ultimate authority... And I'm going to prove it by look, pointing to that. What does that say to you? It says that that, not this, has the ultimate authority. Does that make more sense? That's why we have to let the Bible say, is the Bible the authoritative? Because there's not a higher resource we can go to. Hope that helps. So today, 
We're going to look at God's word to see what it has to say about itself so that we might become stronger believers in the Bible. You know, last time I preached here, two weeks ago, does it seem like longer than that to you? Feels like a long time to me. Last time, I spent just a short period of time sort of sweeping through verses 7 through 11 of Psalm 19. That's the section that talks to us about God's special revelation, the, the, the word of God, the Bible, right? Verses 1 through 6 of that psalm celebrate the glory of God's general revelation. The heavens reveal the glory of God. They applaud how the, 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 the nature and creation reveal to us that God is and that God is glorious. But we learned as we looked at God's glory in the heavens that general revelation can only convince you that God is. It cannot tell you everything you need to know to know God. If you want to know God, you need God's special revelation, and that special revelation is found in the Word of God. That's the focus of verses 7 through 11. And we're going to take some time today learning to trust and treasure and obey the Bible as God's holy Word. And the first, the primary way we're going to do it is verses 7 through 9. Now, again, you teachery types here. We got some teachery types, right, Kay? That's right, <laughs> she guesses. Some of you homeschool moms here, in this culture, everybody's a homeschool mom, but this is a good spot to think about. We're going to take some weird notes here. By the time we're done, we're going to look at 18 Hebrew words. That's unusual for how I teach. You guys know that. And you're going to see six parallel statements about the Bible. Three significant concepts in each of those statements. So you could make a beautiful chart in your notes if you want to be a chart maker. You can make a lovely list if you want to be a list maker. Or you can just listen real hard, however you want to do it, okay? Listen to Psalm 19, 7 through 9 again. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. That is a power-packed little section of scripture, folks. There are six parallel statements there made about the word of God. And in each of those statements, you learn a title for God's word a description of God's word, and a function of God's word. So if you're making a, a nice little table, right, you've got title, description, and function six times over. Let's not waste any time. We've got a lot of work to do, so let's just get after it, okay? The first statement, the first of the parallel statements is found in verse 7, and it says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. First word we're going to look at is law. And the, the word law, the Hebrew word for law there, I won't always tell you what the Hebrew word is, but the Hebrew word for law is a word you should be familiar with. It's the word Torah. You guys heard the word Torah before? Right. Torah means law, but, but it really means more than that. It means instruction. It means teaching. The first time you see the word, it's in Genesis chapter 26, where Abraham is said to have followed God's instruction or his law. And there the word Torah just meant the stuff God told Abraham to do. Abraham did what God said, therefore he followed God's Torah. But by the book of Exodus, God gives Moses instructions that he wrote down. 
In the books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, then the word Torah refers to both the commands given by God on Mount Sinai as well as the particular rules and the instructions for all of the parts of Hebrew life. The book of Deuteronomy tells us Moses wrote down all the words of the law, the Torah, and he preserved them for future generations. And by the time Joshua is on the scene, sixth book of the Bible, the word Torah is almost exclusively being used to point us to the written down commands of God. Torah means God's teaching written down in the book. And while that word can mean instruction generally, when it's used formally the way it's used here in Psalm 19, there is no question that David is writing here about the written down revelation of God. Now, why is it important to take a moment to recognize that the word that's translated law here is specifically referring to the written down revelation of God, you ask? We've got to understand that. Because we have to understand that what is here being said about the law of the Lord also applies to what you and I have, what you and I believe today. David wrote about the Torah because that was the scripture that David had access to. We have that writing. In addition to that writing, we have the other books of the prophets in the Old Testament. And we have the New Testament scriptures. And all of those scriptures put together carry the same weight. All of them are the written down revelation of God. So when David here talks about the law of God, or the Torah of God, you and I need to be talking about the Bible as a whole. And it is vital that we recognize what the Bible says to us about itself. Now, one more thing I want you to see. We'll only point this out once. In all six of these parallels... After we have a title for the scripture, you see the something of the Lord. It happens six times, twice in each verse. David knew, and you and I must also know, that the written down revelation that we study here today is the revelation of God. It's God's book. These are God's word that he inspired men to write. This is his revelation of himself to us. These are his standards, his principles, his judgments, his words. Now, let's look at the, the first description we get for the Torah. He says to us that the law is... Well, what word do you see there? What is the law? Perfect. Perfect. Perfect is a Hebrew word literally meaning complete, sound, or blameless. God's law never falls short. It lacks nothing. It says nothing that is wrong. It is right from beginning to end, and it misses nothing in the middle. John MacArthur wrote about this. He says this, quote, it is to say then that the scripture covers everything. It lacks nothing. It lacks nothing. It is a comprehensive source of teaching from God, which therefore embodies all that is necessary to the spiritual life of God's people, end quote. And what does 
function, what does the perfect word of God do? David says it restores the soul. Let me just ask you, even right here, before I tell you what it means, how many of you would like a little soul restoration? Yeah? You think, nah, my soul's good. I don't need any more life. Maybe a little bit, right? Interestingly, though, the word for restore here, um, and Jared, you would have liked this from Sunday school earlier today, by the way, the word restore here in Hebrew is a word that literally means to turn around or change directions. You know what, we, what, what other word we use for that, guys? Repent. That word for restores the soul is often used in the Old Testament for repent. It means to, com- to make a complete turnabout. So the law of the Lord turns your soul around. If your soul is in danger, if your soul's walking down a wrong path, if it's facing destruction, the teaching of God in the book of God will restore your soul, turning it away from destruction toward righteousness, restoration, and life. That's not a bad statement, is it? See how this is going to work? Title, description, function. Let's do the second statement. You guys with me, by the way? Okay, I, I, I need to be sure because I, I can't see you. Okay, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Okay, so this is a parallel line to the first line. And the word that, is, that parallels the word law or Torah from the first line is what? Testimony. Now, that Hebrew word is a word that means testimony. It means admonition. It means warning. It was used to refer to the written down revelation of God as the testimony, the written Torah, was placed in the Ark of the Covenant. And that brings with it the idea that God testifies in a legal sense about who he is and what he demands. So this warns us about the standards of God that we need to be following. And the testimony of God is, what is it? Describe it to me. Play along. The testimony of the Lord is sure. That word means strong, faithful, trustworthy. Sometimes that word in Hebrew is used of the doorpost or pillars of a house or a temple, which means it's sturdy, means it's reliable. Have you guys noticed that we live in a world that does not seem to be consistent when it deals with truth? Have you seen that before? People say truth is relative. People say truth changes. But the word of God is neither relative nor changeable. It is not wavering, fickle, or malleable. God's word is sure, sturdy, strong, steady, reliable. And the trustworthy testimony of God does what? It makes wise the simple. How many of you would like a little of that in your life? Again, I want to read from John MacArthur, quote, Here is a marvelous promise. The word of God can take a naive, inexperienced, undiscerning, uninformed, ignorant person and bring them to such wisdom that they can live out a godly life according to the will of God. Not bad, right? So if you would like to be wise in the eyes of God and not naive, simple, or foolish, the place that you look to gain the wisdom that you need is God's written word third statement 
Psalm 17, 8. I'm sorry, Psalm 19, 8. What is that? It's weird. Um, the precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart. Psalm 19, 8. Here, the word of God is called his precepts. That word it only appears in the Psalms. And it points to the commands of God, the commands written down in God's word. And it carries with the meaning, the idea of God's divine principles, God's guidelines, God's instructions. And the precepts of God, his principles, are right. They're never crooked. They're always straight. They're always true. They will never lead you in a wrong direction. They will never lead you down a wrong path. You can follow God's precepts in God's word and they will never lead you outside of God's will. But they will guide you straight to where God wants you to be. And when you follow straight and right precepts of God that you find in God's written word, it says they will lead your heart to joy. And the idea is gladness, celebration. John Piper says to us, quote, We are commanded to rejoice in God. If obedience is doing what God commands, then joy is not merely the spin-off of obedience, it is obedience, end quote. Joy is the result of obeying God. Joy is obeying God. God's commands lead you to the ultimate of all joys, the joy of having done the very thing for which you were created, which is to glorify God. Fourth statement. I told you we we're gonna do a little work here. Psalm 19.8. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. I like this one. Now the word for commandment, interesting little word here. In Exodus 24.12, it's combined with what, gave, what God gave Moses on the mountain with the word law. So Torah and this go together for what God said to Moses on the mountain. Interesting though, it's, it's the Hebrew word mitzvah. You ever hear that word before? What, what does it make you think of? Bar mitzvah. The word bar in Hebrew is a son or a child of. Mitzvah is the law, the written word of God. A son of the law. When a, when a Jewish boy comes of age, that's the celebration. He is now a son under the law. As the commandment of God, the scripture, the mitzvah of God, has authority. And what that means, friends, is it's not optional to you or to me. It is the command of God that you must follow or you rebel against God. And the commandments of God, they are what? They are pure. That's the word, well, for pure. It means clean. It means innocent. It means choice, like a choice offering. The other times this word occurs in the Psalms, it talks about having a pure heart, no evil in it, no blemish, no taint of sin in the word of God. It is pure. It is completely and perfectly pure. And the pure commands of God enlighten our eyes. Now, have some fun with me here because this is kind of cool. When you think of enlightening the eyes, there's really two things that could be said here. And I bet you think of the first one and I think it means the second one. So, but either one fits because the Word of God does both of these things. Psalm 119.130 says... The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. When you read enlightens the eyes, 
One idea is that the word gives you light. It show, gives you understanding. It gives you wisdom. And God's word absolutely does that for us because it teaches us who God is and what God expects of us. But let me give you the second one because I think this could really be what David's after here. First um, Samuel fourteen twenty seven. Do you guys remember that weird passage when Saul's son Jonathan goes over and fights off a bunch of Philistines but nobody had eaten all day and then Jonathan eats a little honey? Listen to this verse. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath so he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth. And his eyes became bright. This is the Old Testament equivalent of a five-hour energy. Something like that, right? Have you guys ever been dull, dragon, and maybe that morning cup of coffee brightens your eyes? Who knows what I'm talking about? Yeah. Listen here, Ezra 9, 8. But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within this holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. Or Psalm 13, verse 3, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. See, the three passages I just read to you, all three of those that connect light to your eyes, it means more than to give you wisdom. It means to give you life, to refresh you, to rejuvenate you. And that's what I think is probably in view here in Psalm 19. Yes, God's word will give you wisdom, no doubt about it. But God's word gives you life. It gives you strength to serve God. Where we as believers, when we read the word, when we meditate on the word, when we follow the word, the pure commands of God, God gives us strength and energy and power to follow God. And I think it's beautiful. All right, statement five. Verse nine. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The word for fear means terror, awe, reverence. And if you look at it, this is the one word of the six that really you don't immediately assume it ties to the written book. But there are several places in the Bible where the fear of God is paralleled with or tied directly to instruction, which you can only get in the word. As an example, Psalm 34, 11 says, Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. The psalmist is not saying he's going to teach the people an emotion. He's going to teach them the word of God that will bring about the right reverence of God. Or Psalm 119, verse 38, which says, Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. So the promise of God, which is to be confirmed in Psalm 119, is obviously the promise of the written word of God. And it's the written word of God that is directly connected to the fear of God. Or Proverbs 1 verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So here, the parallel, the synonym to the fear of the Lord is wisdom and instruction. 
So the point is that the fear of the Lord is a fear directly connected to the written down word of God. And as we get to know God through God's book, we will learn to reverence God as God commands. And the fear of God, and the book that brings us the fear of God, it says is clean. That's the word that is often used for what's ceremonially clean. It's the word that, for what's pure and acceptable to God. It's, it's what you could offer God in worship. So we see that the level of perfection that God demands of the people who would worship him, that level of perfection is found in God's holy word. And the clean fear of God brought about by God's holy word is something that will endure forever. The cleanness of God's word does not fall apart over time. It doesn't stop, change, or become unclean just because nations rise and fall or cultures change. I want you to get this right here because it says the word of God endures forever. I want you to get this. Don't lose this, Christians. This is going to be really important for what we study in the future. What was righteous before God 2,000 years ago is still righteous before God today. Do you buy that? What was evil before God 2,000 years ago is still evil today. That's what it means that the word of God endures forever. Kingdoms will rise. Nations will fall. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Sixth statement, last one. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So the final word for the word is a rule. And it speaks of God's judgments or his justice. MacArthur calls these the divine verdicts from the bench of the judge of all the universe. And the verdict, the rule of God is true. It's a word that indicates it's firm. God's holy word is always in all things absolutely true. It stands firm. It does not deceive. It does not crumble under genuine scrutiny. And the word for righteous here and righteous altogether, it's a word that means justified. It means acquitted. It means shown to be just or right. When the word of God is examined over the test of eternity, the word of God will stand as righteous. Every other system of thought, every other philosophy, Every other man-made system will be proved to be incorrect, insufficient, or guilty of wrong. But the word of God will stand justified, proved to have been right from beginning to end. And there are 18 Hebrew words for you. Why do we do that? What's the point? I want you, God wants you to trust in the Bible as God's holy word. The Bible is here called God's law, testimony, precepts, commands, fear, and rule. All of those words are intended to bring to your mind 
different aspects of the written down revelation of God and we have that revelation of God in the Bible and so what is said about the word of God is said about the Bible here this is good what is said about the Bible should give you great confidence in it because the Bible is perfect sure right pure clean and true those words tell you it's not full of error it's not sinful, it's not faulty, it's not flawed, it's not wavering, it's not wrong in any way. It is totally true, totally trustworthy, totally right in every way. Yeah, people will debate how this or that might need to be interpreted, or maybe some people will de debate how something might be translated, but let me tell you, those debates are really actually very few and very far between when you look at the real study of the Word. But there's no debate in the word of God, that the words as they were inspired by God are incapable of error, perfect in every way, and fully sufficient for everything that the Christian needs. And the impact of the word of God on your life is priceless. The Bible is said to revive the soul, make wise the simple, rejoice the heart, enlighten the eyes, endure forever, and be righteous altogether. And you want every last one of those things happening in your life. Don't you want your soul turned back from destruction toward life? Yes. Don't you want your life to be one of wisdom rather than naivete? Yeah. Don't you want your heart to rejoice? Don't you want your life to be rejuvenated, your eyes to be enlightened? Don't you want your life to be built around something that will last forever and be proved, will be proved altogether right when everything is said and done? Folks, if you want those things, you can find them in no other place at all than in the Word of God. So yes, trust the Bible. It's God's holy Word. What we're going to do now is we're going to read these last two verses to be reminded of how our hearts need to respond to this trustworthy word of God. 10 and 11 say, More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sooner also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there's great reward. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ here today, watching online these verses ought to mark your response to the Bible it is worth more than the greatest treasure you can imagine it is sweeter than the sweetest pleasure you could ever conjure it warns you away from danger it leads you to ultimate joy it is a treasure the like of which you cannot find in the rest of the globe it's a guide, the following of which leads to eternal joy and ultimate reward. So treasure and obey the word of God. And if you're here today or hearing me today and you don't know what to make of Christianity, I would urge you, start with the book. God revealed to you in that book everything you need to know about him and about yourself. The Bible makes claims about itself that demand you pay attention to them. You cannot hear these claims of God and then say they don't matter. You can disagree with them if you want. You can ignore them and reject them if you want. But you cannot pretend that a, a massive claim is not made over your very life and over your very soul in the Bible. 
The God of the universe will ultimately respond to your life before him and his judgment is going to be directly in line with what God revealed in God's holy word. God's word says that we have all broken his laws, but he sent his only son to pay the penalty for our crime. His word tells us if we will put our trust in Jesus, turning away from our sin and turning in faith to Jesus, he will forgive us for all the wrong that we've done before him and he will grant to us the gift of forgiveness and eternal life. That's a promise worth looking into and you can receive that promise today. If you don't know how, I would love for you to come reach out to me afterwards and I'd love to talk to you. If you're a believer though, the call's simple. Trust, treasure, obey the Bible as God's holy word. If you fail to believe the Bible, you fail to believe God. If you fail to obey the Bible, you, you fail to obey God. If you fail to treasure the Bible, you fail to treasure God's words for you. Do not be guilty of that insult toward God. Do not lose sight of the word of God. Do not forget God's commands. We saw the nation of Judah. They, they forgot the words of God. They, they had no idea what the book was. Don't be like that. Be a person of the book and encourage others around you to be people of the book, trusting, treasuring, obeying the Bible, which is the holy word of God. Let's bow together and pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you gave us what we need to know you and to honor you. And I plead with you, Lord, I plead with you that you would make this church be the most passionately committed to the word of God people on the face of the earth. Because if we'll be committed to your word, we'll be committed to you, we'll be committed to each other, and we'll do the things you call us to. God, help us. Help us get it right. It's so, so easy for us to start following the arguments, the standards of the world around us. But that's not your way. Your way is found in your word. Please, God, make us people of the book so that we can be people of the Lord. If there's anyone who hears this and doesn't understand it or has never come to faith in Christ, I, pl I pray, Lord, that you will work in them to help them reach out your way, turn from sin, and trust in Jesus for salvation. For all the rest of us, God, I pray that we will indeed trust you in your word, loving you, honoring you, being faithful to you. And that's our prayer in Christ's holy name. Amen.